Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on the Leadership Habit Podcast. Today, we are actually going to be sharing with you a conversation that we had a few weeks back with Dr. Tyrone Holmes. This was actually a live webinar event where we talked about inclusive leadership and what we can do as leaders to create a more inclusive culture by also understanding how bias plays a role in how we lead. Now, for those that haven't or have maybe missed our past podcast with Dr. Tyrone Holmes, let me just tell you a little bit about him. He is a professional speaker, consultant, and author, and Dr. Holmes has facilitated more than 1,500 paid keynotes, seminars, and classes that have taught participants to connect with others despite their differences, to effectively articulate their messages, to connect with diverse audiences and groups, and to reduce unconscious bias. His most recent book is Making Diversity a Competitive Advantage, 70 Tips to Improve Communication, which is a tool that we can use to build powerful connections in diverse organizations. Dr. Holmes and I sat down and had a conversation, and this topic is just so incredibly important to me because I have a very racially diverse family and I've watched, haven't experienced personally, but watch the pain that can come from discrimination to those that I love. And so I hope as you listen to this conversation, you think about what you can do and how you can show up differently to create a more inclusive space in your organization or on your team for everyone to thrive. Enjoy the conversation. We are live. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining Crescom's monthly webinar. And This month is a very special month for us. We partner a lot for our leadership development with thought leaders in the industry. And typically our webinars are just me kind of, you know, sharing different ideas. But today we actually have one of our thought leaders with us. We have Dr. Tyrone Holmes. I'm so excited to have him. You are going to be hearing all of his his expertise, his insight his way of how we can move forward as leaders, what we can do to create a more diverse and inclusive space, which is so important. We know that now more than ever, that's what we need. We need to create a culture where every single person on our team can succeed and thrive. So thank you so much for joining us for Embracing Inclusive Leadership, bringing everyone to the table. We're going to be talking about everything that we can do to make sure that people have the same opportunity and that we can get the most out of our people by seeing them for who they are. This is so exciting. So we're going to introduce Tyrone Holmes. For those that may be unfamiliar with him, he is a speaker and consultant, but he's also an author. Um, And you can reach him at this contact, and we're going to share that with you at the end. But while I'm just getting started, please just throw in the chat bar where you are from. Where are you joining us from on this webinar? Are you joining us from Denver where I am? Are you joining us from Arizona where Tyrone is? We want to see where everyone is right now. We have got, oh my gosh, we've got San Diego here. I love that city. We've got Delray Beach, Florida, Ontario, Virginia, UK. So many people. It's so great to be here with you and just know that we're going to be connecting as a community to figure out what we can do as leaders to make our places better. So Tyrone Holmes, he talks all about unconscious bias, essentially understanding our own blind spots and how 
they can be good, the unconscious bias, but sometimes they can lead to really faulty logic and bad decisions. But you're joining us for just a conversation. So what I want to say right now is I encourage you to leverage that Q&A option at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Ask us questions live. We want to be able to answer them. And actually, we I mean, Tyrone, because we have his presence. For those that have not been on our past webinars, we do these every single month. My name is Jen DeWall, and I am a leadership development strategist and facilitator for Crestcom. So that just means that we teach leadership development every single month. And for those that are unfamiliar with us, we are a global leadership development organization that focuses on developing managers into leaders. We truly believe that leaders will give us the change that we want to see in the world. So to start out, I just want to start off with this quote by Verna Myers, who is also someone that's a thought leader within the diversity and inclusion field. We're talking about the subject of diversity and inclusion. And diversity is being invited to the party, but inclusion is being asked to dance. So yeah, diversity is making sure that everyone has a place. They all have that invite. But inclusion is making sure that they all feel connected, that they all have that same opportunity. And if we think about equity, that means that we have that equal playing field. I'm going to go ahead and stop sharing my screen now. And we're going to get into our interview with Tyrone Holmes again. I just want to say I encourage you to leverage the Q&A because we want this to be as interactive as possible. So we would love to hear from you. Um, Tyrone, before we go into it, just please, could you introduce yourself? Because I, I'm sure I did not do you justice, but could you please just introduce yourself and tell our audience what you do, what your expertise is, and what you love about diversity and inclusion? Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And I want to thank all of you who are participating for the gift of your presence and participation. And who am I? Uh, basically, I'm asked this question all the time. And the way I answer it is I talk about what it is that I do professionally. And I am a professional speaker, a coach, and a consultant. And what I focus on, and I've been doing this for the better part of a quarter of a century, is that I help people build powerful connections. I help individuals develop the skills that allow them to communicate, to resolve conflict, to solve problems, and to reduce bias in culturally diverse settings. And uh, I think the question is, what do I, what do I really enjoy about this? Uh, what I really enjoy is being able to work with individuals, to work with teams, to work with groups, to work with departments, to work with divisions, to work with organizations, to help their employees develop those skill sets. Because the fact of the matter is that we live in a society where we do not always connect effectively. We live in a society where we do not always bond and build relationships that allow us to be as successful as we can be. And I think that there are probably just a few things that we need to do in order to be more effective with that to build those powerful relationships, to build those powerful connections, to use our similarities as a bridge over our differences. And so I'm excited and have always enjoyed being able to help people identify a step or two that they can take to do that effectively. And so I'm excited to be here and looking forward to having a great conversation. Yes. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is such a broad topic, and there's so much to unpack there. Where is a place to start? Where do you think that leaders can start to bring this into their organization to create a more inclusive space? Where, where do you start as a leader? Because it can be really overwhelming. Oh, we need to change this. Oh, we need to do that. Where do you even begin to feel like you can chip away and really create that inclusive space? There are a lot of places you can start. And I'm not saying that what I'm about to say is, is what everyone should actually go out there and do necessarily. There, there could be some differences of perspective in terms of where you want to start. 
But this is what I always suggest, and that is to answer the following question. What do we need to do to create environments that maximize the likelihood of success for a diverse array of people? And of course, the answer to that question can be different for different organizations. It can be different for different teams. It can be different for different departments. But I think a great place to start is how do we go about creating environments that maximize the likelihood of success for a diverse array of people? Because most environments are actually going to maximize the success for a certain group of people, for, for a certain type of person based on their race or their ethnicity or their gender or their age or their background or their, their expertise or their knowledge base, whatever that might be. But it might not necessarily facilitate the success of, of some people that don't fit within that particular uh, uh, class or that, that particular uh, group of individuals. And so that, that first question I would suggest is think about, okay, what do we need to do or do we need to do anything differently that allows us to maximize the likelihood of success for a diverse range of people? And to have some discussion around that and to have some conversation around that, because if you do some brainstorming, you throw that question out with, uh, with a diverse group of people within your organization, and you do some brainstorming, you're probably going to get some insights about, well, here's some things that we're not doing that might make us more effective. Yeah, things like making it, you know, even with our recruiting processes or our onboarding processes, mm-hmm. I know that you talk about that, you know, a lot of understanding how we can actually remove bias. But, you know, one big thing that I think we're seeing out there is that initiating the conversation can be a little intimidating. And so one of the questions that we received, so just for everyone on the webinar, we did actually receive a group of questions that we're going to be following through, but we still want to hear from you. But one of the questions that we received from someone is, I'm not really comfortable talking about race in the workplace. How and where do I start? Especially if you might be, like I know myself, I would be considered the the white woman that has more privilege. And I know that there are some people that are like, how do I even initiate that conversation? How do I show people that I am an inclusive leader? How do you start that, that what is perceived to be a very difficult or maybe even an uncomfortable conversation? That's a great question. And I really wanted us to spend some time talking about this. And I have a couple of thoughts about that. First and foremost, what I want people to know is that it is okay to feel uncomfortable. And sometimes I think that we don't do a very good job of pointing out the fact that anything that takes us out of our comfort zone is going to, of course, make us feel uncomfortable. And for many, many people, talking about issues of race and ethnicity and similar topics is going to take us out of our comfort zone. It's not what we're used to. It's not what we do on a regular basis. And so we're going to feel a level of discomfort. That's okay. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And what I always suggest is to make sure those conversations start and and really focus on things related to how we can become more effective as an organization, how we can become more effective as a team, how we can become more effective as individuals. So in other words, I'm not necessarily a big advocate, particularly starting out, of having general conversations about race and ethnicity. And the reason I say that, and some people might say, well, I think we should have those conversations. I'm not saying you shouldn't have the conversations. I'm saying that I wouldn't start that way. What I'd start with yeah. is how can, think- have conversa- how can we have conversations uh, as it relates to race and ethnicity where we focus on how do we help certain groups of people become more effective in this organization? That's a slightly different conversation. We're not having a general conversation about race and ethnicity so much as we're having a conversation about how we can actually change policy or how we can actually change practices so we maximize the likelihood of success for a diverse array of people. 
And I think having those conversations that are related to how we operate as an organization, how we operate as a business, how we operate as an entity, and what we need to do a little bit differently to make sure that we are broadening our, our, our reach of people who can be included and can be a part of that process are good and easier conversations to have. Yeah, I, I appreciate the, that it's not necessarily initiating a conversation about race, you know, hey, this, how do you experience that? But it's, it sounds like what you're saying is to reframe our question. What is the question or the, the problem that we're trying to solve? How can we create a more inclusive place for all to thrive? And I think that's great because it's, you know, I think initially people might say, well, let's, let's have a conversation and talk about race, but that's not necessarily, it may bring some trust. It may be, it brings some awareness, but that's not necessarily bringing the action into yeah. what you can do to actually serve underrepresented people, which brings us to the next question. How can I, as a leader, create access and opportunity for underrepresented groups within my organization? How, how can I do that? Because I may not have necessarily the title or I may not perceive myself to have influence. So what can I do as an individual? Or you can talk to different, I guess, levels within the organization, but what can we do to create uh, more opportunity for underrepresented groups? I think the best way to start with that is simply talking to members of underrepresented groups within your organization and ask them what's missing. Ask them what are some things here that are missing that would make your experience a more effective one, that would make your connection with the organization a more effective one. What are some steps that we can take that we can help to more effectively bring people uh, within the organization in ways that will allow them to be successful? Uh, one of the things, that, and just so everybody knows, uh, Jen and I talked about different questions that we might pose and we might discuss, and I think we came out with about a dozen that, that were working questions that we may or may not get to. But one of the things that really struck me as I went through the questions is that a lot of those questions could be answered very, very simply with just a couple of things. One is listening. One of the things that we need to take some time to do is to listen to people, to listen to people who are culturally different to listen to people who might be, quote unquote, outsiders in the organization, meaning that they are, they're not connected uh, within the organization, to listen to what their concerns are, to listen to what their ideas are, to listen to what they have to say. And another thing that we can do that relates to this is to be empathetic, to genuinely try to understand where people are coming from. And the best definition I've ever seen of empathy or heard of empathy is putting on another person's shoes walking around in them and experiencing the world from their perspective. And it's not something I think we take much time to do in our society today. And I get it. We got tons of things to do. We're always busy. We're always running around crazy. I totally get that. But if we listen more and if we, we endeavor to try to understand where people are coming from, I think that goes a long way by itself to helping individuals who are underrepresented group members have more of a voice to have more of, of, of a connection to the organization, to feel like someone actually cares about what's going on and what it is that they're dealing with and some of the struggles that they may be having. So those are just some basic things. On a more procedural standpoint, one of the things that I always suggest is to think about how you bring people onto, into your organization. Think about it from a recruitment standpoint, from an interviewing standpoint, from a selection standpoint. And then once you make a decision to bring somebody in, from an onboarding standpoint. And as, as you said, Jen, I'm really big into unconscious bias and understanding how our biases interfere with our ability to be effective within an organization. 
One of the things that we know is that various biases get in the way of all those types of things in terms of the recruitment process and the interviewing process and the selection process and the onboarding process. And so another thing that we can do is to think about how our biases may negatively impact those who are underrepresented group members. Think about how our biases may have a negative impact on our ability to effectively recruit, to select, and to, to onboard individuals. So those are just some, some basic things that we can do. And there's, there's other things as well. Uh, but I think that's a great start, to listen, to genuinely understand, to demonstrate empathy, and to really consider how our biases can interfere with our ability to do those things. They're all really, really powerful steps that we can take. Yeah, and I think even for some people, just creating your initial awareness of your bias. I know that I worked for a large corporation and one of the biases you talk about is affinity bias and or also one of my favorites. Some, yeah, right, the, the like me bias, try you know gravitating towards people that are most like you. And I know that I worked for an organization uh, throughout my career where it was very easy to pinpoint who worked there. I could also pinpoint who was going to get promoted based on what they looked like, not actually or necessarily based on their competence or ability to do their job. And that is a flaw. That is a, a tremendous flaw. And I don't think you necessarily realize it because in the, in the beginning, I think it was like, oh, look at how many friends I have or how many connections were so similar. And that's great. You can have a lot of friends. It's great for socialization. It's great for a lot of different things. But what you don't realize is that there's someone missing from that picture. There's, there are people missing from that picture that when you add them in, can bring that growth. So even if you think about, because I think for some people, they may not necessarily realize initially who could be part of an underrepresented group. Who are those individuals that our organization is not serving because we might be so acclimated to seeing people look, think, act in a certain way. Not sure if you have any comments about like affinity bias. You know, I know you can take that to a different level, but I do think that maybe it's just my own personal bias saying that I noticed that so much. So I, I, I wonder if there are other people that also have that where they look around their organization and they're like, we're pretty similar. And, you know, maybe even talking about the detriment that happens when we're all the same. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really important consideration. And, and I said, affinity bias is my favorite bias, not because not it's a good bias or anything like that. It's, just, <laughs> it, it's my favorite to talk about. And it's my favorite to talk about because it is so pervasive and every single human being is affected by it. It is impossible to not be affected by uh, affinity bias. And the reason is because, and just so we're all on the same page, by definition, affinity bias is a natural human tendency to gravitate toward those we perceive to be most like ourselves, and therefore away from those who perceive to be less like ourselves. The way I like to put it is that we like to hang out with people who look like us and walk like us and talk like us and think like us and act like us. And I always emphasize that it is a natural human condition, and it's born out of wanting to stay in our comfort zone. Our comfort zone is a psychological safe space and it allows us to be in a place where we're relatively stress-free, we have relatively little tension and anxiety, where we feel comfortable in our comfort zone and it's a place that we wanna be. It's also one of the most powerful forces that keeps us separate from people that we perceive to be different from ourselves and makes it more difficult to, to, to build bridges across those cultural differences because we have to step outside of our comfort zone to do that. And one of the things that I emphasize organizationally, and this actually also helps to address a lot of the questions that we're going to talk about, is that as a leader, anything you can do to create opportunities for people to interact with those they don't normally have a chance to interact with or learn about those they don't normally have a chance to learn about 
will begin the process of reducing affinity bias. It will allow people to begin to expand their comfort zones. And it will also allow people who are culturally different to have opportunities to connect across those differences more effectively. And so it's a really, really important consideration. And, and again, and I, and I want to kind of build this theme that none of us has to do really difficult stuff. I, I know some of the stuff might be psychologically difficult, but in terms of implementation, it's not like you got to spend 40 hours a week doing it. If we just actually step outside of our comfort zone and start to connect with people who are different from us, that goes miles and miles and miles to creating environments that maximize the likelihood of success for a diverse array of people. If we just give opportunities for people to do that, you, and you can do it with doing simple things like icebreaker activities or team building activities, or if you're a leader and you're assigning work, giving people who don't normally have a chance to interact with each other, give them a chance during the course of their work to engage one another and to, to, to build a relationship that way. Those are all things that reduce affinity bias. Those are all things that help people who are underrepresented group members build connections within the organization. Those are all things that allow us to build more powerful relationships, to build more powerful connections, and to ultimately be more effective at the work that we're trying to do. I love the idea of being able to think about how can we educate, how can we share, and how can we initiate conversations or opportunities where people can learn more. I've heard of organizations you know, celebrating different cultural holidays that represented different people in their organization, just as a way to obviously acknowledge, but educate people that we are all uniquely different and we all do have things to learn and just to share with each other. Because I think there's a lot that we can share and in a beautiful way that can make us better, make us think differently. But I love the icebreakers, just getting people like, what are other things you've heard of? I don't know if you've heard of anything other, else that other organizations are doing, but I know that setting up maybe even lunch and learns, giving people the mm-hmm. opportunity to say, hey, do you want to know more about what Ramadan is or what, you know, another like religious celebration or just a general celebration? Like, do you want to know more about that? Let's talk about this. And, and that's a good way of doing it. I, I've actually been a facilitator at Lunch and Learns for various organizations where we were talking about a particular topic. People can come in, bring their lunch, and just have a discussion around that. Uh, there are there are town hall meetings where there's a, a particular topic that people are going to have a conversation around. Although the key to that, since you might actually get quite a few people to come to the, uh, to those meetings, is to have a really good facilitator that can facilitate that that discussion. I've seen things like that. I've seen uh, basically team building type activities where you have your intact team uh, spend an hour maybe doing some activities that allow them to get to know each other a little bit better. Uh, just doing fun things. And, and you, you don't even need to spend an hour. You can literally, if you have a meeting and you're, you're going to have a meeting for the next hour, uh, you might actually spend the first 10 minutes of that meeting doing something that gives people a chance on your team to get to know each other in ways that they did not have before. And so those are all things that help us build more powerful connections and build more powerful relationships and expand our comfort zones as we get to, to know and engage people who we may have perceived as being culturally different but one of the things that's real powerful, and in fact, let me, let me take a step back. I'm gonna, I'll say this quickly, but I have an activity that I've done for years, and I call it 90-second introductions, and it's a real simple activity to do, and it's really, really a revealing activity. And how it works is I'll have a group of people, and usually I'm doing a workshop or a keynote or presentation, and what I do is I have people pair up with someone that they don't know, either they don't know at all, or they don't know very well. And what I have them do is I say for the next 90 seconds, Talk about what you have in common. Talk about your similarities. So they're in a pair and they're having these conversations about the things that they have in common. 
And then I say, okay, great. Now for the next 90 seconds, I want you to talk about your differences. And so I give them 90 seconds to talk about what's different. And then I have everybody sit back down. I ask a single question. And that is, what did you learn? And the number one response that I've gotten after doing this dozens and dozens of times over the, over the last probably 20, 25 years is that it was much harder coming up with differences than similarities. Or he had way more in common than I would have ever realized. And one of the things that I use as a teaching point, and I wanted to use this example now, is that I don't care the situation, I don't care what the circumstances are, I don't care what your organization does. The fact of the matter is that individuals who are culturally different will virtually always have far more in common than they have that is different. The problem is we don't do a very good job of using our commonalities and our similarities to build a bridge across those differences. And if we give people a chance to connect and to, to converse and to interact with one another across those differences, they can start to build those bridges and they can start to interact much more effectively. And then those who are underrepresented, they're going to actually, by, by virtue of having done that, build those connections that allow them to become uh, more interactive within the organization, become more like insiders as opposed to outsiders where they feel like they're on the outside looking in. My gosh, I love just the simple, it seems so much more approachable by saying, you know, even that example of the activity that you did 90 seconds talking about, you know, what you have been say, the same 90 seconds talking about your differences. But really the point there is how can you leverage your commonalities to build a bridge, to make your team more cohesive and connected? That to me is, I know it seems so simple, like using your commonalities to build the bridge, but it's also very accessible for people. I, I love, I love, love, love that activity. That's something that I encourage everyone to do. Go back and see if you can do that on your team and figure out how you can leverage that. We did get a quote. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say we have a couple of questions in the group chat and in the Q&A section. Yeah. All right, Tyrone, you ready for the, the live questions? Ready. All right. So we've got one from Elena. Elena, thank you so much for writing in the question. When looking at a systemic approach, involving more than a single department or organization, how have you found the implementation of person-first language, trauma-informed approaches, and bias training most successful and sustainable? That's a handful. Uh, and actually, <laughs> let, let, me, let me take a, a bit of a step back. What I'm going to suggest is two things in terms of creating success. First, and you, you identified some really interesting things in terms of unconscious bias training, uh, person-first language, things of that nature, which are really, really powerful and really, really important. But the first thing I'm going to suggest is that whatever you do when it comes to diversity and inclusion, because this is the biggest mistake that I have seen people make, and I've been doing this for a quarter of a century, and that mistake is failing to connect what they're trying to do with their diversity and inclusion efforts to their strategic objectives. So the first thing that you want to do is you want to make sure that anything that you do from a training standpoint, from an educational standpoint, you want to make sure that it directly connects to your organization's strategic objectives. So that's the first step. And you want to be able to define how that connects so that if you're doing, for example, unconscious bias training, or if you're doing uh, training and helping people develop the ability to, to utilize uh, a person-first language, you want to make sure that you can say, this is the strategic objective that's part of the organization's vision and strategic plan. This is how it's going to help achieve a particular objective or objectives in that strategic plan or, or, or those, those, those strategic goals. And so you want to be able to do that. That's number one. Can I, can I just ask you for a quick example of that? Would it be like, what would an example of aligning that with a strategic goal? Could it be something like, 
by making sure that, or I guess I'm going to leave it to you. What would be an example of that? One example might be a strategic objective might be the organization wants to tap into some different markets in terms of its sales and marketing efforts. And maybe they want to take advantage of the multicultural market. They want to actually get clients and, and customers that are, uh, that are different from historically with some of the clients and customer bases that they've had. So one of the things that you might say is that you might need to do certain types of training to give people an opportunity to do that. That's an example of that. That's an example of if you want to increase your, your revenues and you want to increase your, your, your sales in a particular area, people might need certain types of training in order to do that. That gives you an opportunity to, to actually do some diversity and inclusion type work uh, designed to do that. Another thing might be is that that I've seen organizations, one of their goals is to reduce uh, uh, their expenses and to reduce uh, perhaps their human resource expenses because they think they've been problematic. And just by way of example, one area might be turnover. And one of the things that we know from research is that bias leads to bad turnover. Individuals who perceive bias within an organization are much more likely to leave that organization than individuals who don't perceive bias within that organization. And so well, another step might be is let's, let's proactively work on reducing uh, bias within our organization. That's likely to reduce bad turnover, which is one of the things that, that we're trying to do in terms of our strategic objectives, which is reduce our HR expenses. And so those are just a couple of examples. And you get the idea, but you just want to make sure that whatever you're trying to do, it connects to those strategic objectives. Because if it doesn't, it's going to fail. And, and I, I'm no longer him and haw about that. If what you're trying to accomplish in terms of your diversity and inclusion processes within your organization do not directly and, and, and cannot be very, very clearly articulated how they connect to your strategic objectives, you will fail. If people aren't going to take it seriously, and even if there, there is a cohort of people who are really driven to do that, over time, they're just going to get... Uh, they're going to be disappointed in the lack of connection and that connectivity to what they're doing and what everybody else is doing because people just don't see how it connects with strategic objectives. And so that's really important. The other thing I want to say in answering that question uh, real quickly is that uh, the question was framed in terms of you're trying to do something across various departments and things of that nature. I'm a big advocate of baby steps. I'm a big advocate of starting out small. And making sure it connects to organizational objectives, but starting to strategic objectives, but starting out relatively small in, in a particular area where, and, and this is just between us people, it's just between us, where you can be almost guaranteed a win. You want to make sure that you have it set up early on to where it, it is, is connected to strategic objectives, and you're likely to have some success in terms of people's buy-in, in terms of people's participation. And in terms of people trying to make this successful, you, you want to build up a wave of, of success. And the best way to do that is to start small and watch it grow, as opposed to try to take it out across department after department all at the same time, where it's going to be more difficult. You're going to face more opposition. And, and I'm not saying you won't be successful because if it's connected to strategic objectives, you got a chance, but it's going to make it more difficult. And so those are two things that I suggest in terms of, of that. Make sure it connects to strategic objectives and look for the look some early, relatively easy wins to, to make sure that you can build some successes. Yeah, absolutely. Baby steps. You don't have to have everything figured out. And it's not going to be a one size fits all for your organization. Like, yes, we wish yes. that we could 
put that through and say, every organization looks like that because every organization is diverse by the nature of it being its own organization and entity. So the baby steps is again, just another way. I love that you're giving so many good, just small ways that we can approach this because it can really quickly get overwhelming. I'm going to go to another question. And this one goes back to your favorite affinity bias. And this is from Fahim. Thank you so much for submitting it. Can you give examples of how affinity bias has been addressed and dealt with giving positive results? Sure. Uh, I'll give you a real simple example. A big part, and I don't want to paint the picture that this is the only place that affinity bias manifests itself because it manifests itself in a lot of different places. But I think one of the biggest places that affinity bias manifests itself is in the recruitment process because we tend to recruit people who are like us. I mean, Jen, you would use an example where you went into an organization, you could actually see that, is that mm-hmm. we tend to bring people into our organizations who, who make us feel comfortable, fit within our comfort zone. And that means that they probably are very similar to us when it comes to, to how they think and how they act and so on and so forth. And so one way to do that, uh, and, and I've actually uh, seen organizations do this, is to look at how you go about recruiting people. And one type of recruitment process, which I, I'm not criticizing, I think this is a good recruitment process, but it is rife with affinity bias, is employee referrals. Uh, they tend to be very common. A lot of organizations tend to use employee referrals when it comes to their recruitment process. And they have, which basically means for those who don't know, where employees of the organization actually identify potential new employees for the organization. And it might be that I work for an organization and I've got a friend or someone that I know that I think is a good fit. And I know we're looking for a person that has their, their capabilities. And so I invite them in and introduce them to people in the organization and we'll see what happens. The reality is that that almost guarantees there's going to be a level of affinity bias in terms of people doing that. And so that's a, that's a potential problem area. Now, what is a potential solution? Well, there's a couple of things. One is, and I said this before, we all have affinity bias and it's not going anywhere anytime soon. But one of the things that you can do is that you can ensure that you have a diverse array of individuals who are actually engaged in that recruitment process. Because while we may all have affinity bias, that affinity bias is going to probably encompass different people. So if you have people of different ages, people of different ethnicities, people of different races, people of different genders, people of different sexual orientations, who are engaged in that, that employee referral process, guess, guess what? You're going to probably have a pretty diverse group of individuals who are going to be considered for positions coming into the organization. So that's one way of thinking about the potential manifestation of affinity bias and then identifying a way to, 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 to tamp down and to reduce that negative impact. Just having, having a diverse array of people who are actively out there doing the search process, actively out there looking for individuals. And that can be very, very successful. Thank you so much for answering that. We keep getting more questions. So this is fantastic. I'm going to quick scroll back because again, remember, this is an open dialogue. We want you to ask us questions. We don't necessarily want to follow the script. We want to provide to you the answers to things that you've been you know, thinking about. We want to be able to serve you in the most personal way. That's why Tyrone is here with us today. So we've got another question. And I think this is a good one too. How do you focus? And this came from Jeff. Thank you so much, Jeff. How do you focus on underserved communities without being accused or having reverse bias? That's a big question. Yeah, it is. Uh, Okay. Part of my personality is going to come out 
on this one and and take it for what it is. Let it out, Tyrone. Let it out. This is hey, diversity and yeah. equity and inclusion is about us being who we are. Let it out. I, I hear that a lot <clears throat> about people accusing uh, uh, individuals of, of reverse racism or reverse any of the isms or and. I've kind of got to a point where it's it's a nonsensical accusation, so I kind of don't pay attention to it anymore. I'm not saying you shouldn't because you're in, in the heart of it, and so you have to deal with it on a certain level, and I can give you some tips for dealing with it. But I've been doing this for a while, and I've kind of gotten to a place where there are things people will say, and there are things that people will do to prevent you from being successful at doing this. And that's one of those things. Uh, the other thing that people, just, just as a quick aside, and I'll answer the question, the, the, the other thing that people will often say is that we only recruit, select, and hire the best of the best, which is also a nonsensical saying, because that's what everybody does. They try to identify and hire the people who are going to ultimately work most effectively in the organization. But what that also means is that that's, that's another element of affinity bias. When people say we look for the best fit, what they're really saying is the people that make me feel the most comfortable and the ones that I want to come to work with, which are the people who look like me and walk like me and talk like me and think like me and act like me. And so sometimes people say that honestly and they mean it honestly, but the reality is that, that that's what that is. So that was my long-winded way of saying, I, I wouldn't worry so much about what people have to say as it relates to that. What I'd focus on is the first part of it, which is how do you reach out to underrepresented uh, individuals and communities? And you simply start by having a conversation and listening. I said earlier that a lot of, of what we're talking about is not cognitively complex. It isn't that difficult to do. It really comes down to it, uh, at least not cognitively. Now, the physical act of doing it, because we are stepping outside of our comfort zone, can be difficult. I totally get that. But the reality is that you start to build connections, you start to build relationships, you start to build structure in terms of your interactions with others by reaching out and starting a conversation and reaching out and starting an interaction where you can have some great dialogue. And that's how you do it. And you can you can actually do it in a structured way. You can actually say to members of an underrepresented group or an underrepresented community, this is what we're trying to accomplish. We are trying to reduce the barriers between what I, I, I refer to as insiders and outsiders, those on the inside and those underrepresented group members who are on the outside. We realize there are barriers to access. We realize it's difficult to get in. And we're genuinely committed to wanting to create an environment that maximizes the likelihood of success for a diverse array of people. So we want to start engaging you in some conversation about what do you need from us? What is it that you're dealing with? What is it that you'd like to see happen? What is it that you'd like from a resource standpoint that, we might, that might make this more effective and more, more helpful for you? And to listen and to understand. It's really that simple. To, to have those kinds of conversations or to create opportunities for people to come together to have those kinds of conversations. And I wouldn't worry, I would do that and I wouldn't worry about the, the small number of individuals who might have something negative to say about that because they're going to just have something negative to say about it. It doesn't necessarily mean that, that it's, it's going to get in the way of what you're trying to accomplish. And do, I should say, I'll say one other thing. When you do this type of work, when you do diversity and inclusion activities, you're going to get a lot of people who support it, but you're going to have some people who don't. Do not think or do not feel that you have to have everyone on board before you take off and, and, and start to do the things you're trying to do. That's another mistake organizations make. That's another mistake people who are, are focused on the diversity and inclusion process make. 
is that we've got to get everybody on board and we've got to get buy-in from everyone before we do this. If you get buy-in from everyone, I guarantee it's because you're doing something that's not going to be worthwhile anyway. You're going to have people that aren't advocates of it. That's fine. You can still go ahead and do it. Now, it's helpful if the people that, that are advocates are people who, for example, in the C-suite, those are your, your, your CEO, your, 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 your chief executive officer, your chief operations officer, people like that. Those you really do want to get the buy-in from and want to make sure that they're on board. But there's going to be others that just are never going to buy into it. And you just have to continue to do the work you're trying to do. Yeah. And I think a big part of that is, you know, trying to understand that reverse racism can exist, but also understanding that how you show up, your own mindset of just coming from that place of curiosity, I'm here to learn. I don't have all the answers. I'm doing the best that I can. And coming to that conversation also with that, hey, you know, I just don't know where to start. And this is the starting point that I have. I'm not, I don't have the answers. I don't know everything that we're supposed to do. I just want, I know that we can do better. I think sometimes, you know, starting with that, that common ground, Hey, and it's what you said. It's not like you have an agenda. You're not just trying to play with the trend of diversity and inclusion. You're here to learn, to understand and to connect. So let me add one other thing, Jen, because this is kind of a pet peeve of mine. There's no such thing as reverse racism or reverse sexism or reverse ageism or any of those kind of things. Racism, sexism, and ageism simply are. There's no reverse to any of them. That's number one. And number two is, and I think this, this, this maybe is going to be helpful, is that sometimes people make the argument, uh, and I kind of get intuitively where people are coming from. I don't agree with it, but I kind of get where they're coming from. They make the argument that if you proactively do things to help members of a particular group, then you are hurting members of the other group. So for example, if you proactively try to help underrepresented group members, well, represented group members are being treated unfairly. But one of the things that I've learned a long time ago is that equity is not treating everyone the same. It's treating everyone fairly. And that means you may wind up treating some people differently because they may need more assistance than others. That's what equity is really about. And that's that's something that I always suggest that you really, really get in, in your mind and be prepared to have that conversation because you may have to have that conversation, is that equity is not about treating everyone the same. It's treating everyone fairly. And that means the behaviors you exhibit may have to be a little bit different simply because some individuals may need more assistance than others. So just just be mindful of that. I think that's a great point to add in. You know, and I think that, you know, it alleviates some of the the confusion that people have around what really equity is and what that means for your organization. All right, I'm going to go to another question. This is from an anonymous attendee. I work for a state or for a state government agency, and for the first time, our senior leadership is asking employees to fill out a survey about equity, diversity, and inclusion. But employees have seen little result of many other surveys. What or how would you encourage employees to ask the C-suite leadership what the plans are for the data collected? I would simply ask that. I, I would simply pose the question, what's the purpose of this survey and how will the data be used? One of the things, and I, I get where the question's coming from, because the leadership in that organization has made a mistake. You do not ever, and this, this is kind of like uh, uh, data collection 101, if you will, you do not ever ask people to participate in a survey, get the results, and then never do anything with it. Right. That's setting yourself up for failure. It's just, like I said, it's data collection 101. And it sounds like they've collected data, but they haven't necessarily done anything with it. 
or they haven't uh, announced plans for what they're, they're going to do with it in the future. And so I think it's a perfectly valid question to say, what is this data going to be used for? We really like the idea that you're trying to collect some information, but are you going to do anything with it other than just collect the data? And so that, that's a perfectly valid question. And as, as an external consultant, one of the things that I would say to their leadership is don't ask questions that you don't want the answers to and don't ask questions that you don't plan on doing anything with those answers and, and because it's just set up. You're much better off not doing anything at all than doing a survey and doing nothing with the survey. Put yeah, yourself from, in a worse position. From an employee perspective, who would, hey, they gave us another survey again that they're not going to do anything about. It's just, it can create that a little bit of disengagement. You're, why yeah. are you asking this? You're, you're showing us that you're, you, you care, right? Those are your words, but your actions are totally different. Absolutely. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I've got another question. And it says, this is going back to Tyrone's comment about asking the underrepresented groups what is missing that would make your experience here better? What type of answers do you think they would give? And that's from Tally. Thank you so much, Tally. That's a great question. I think there's a broad range of responses. I mean, some responses have, have I, I've seen the answers to some of those questions. And one of the things, let me take a step back. Well, before I did this work, I actually worked in higher education. I was a college professor for six years, four years at uh, Wayne State University in Detroit, and two years at Eastern Michigan University before that. And I also worked in student affairs prior to that, where I was at first a uh, director of, of residence halls, where I was, I was responsible for three different residence halls. I was a coordinator of residence hall programs. And I, I also worked as a uh, assistant director of student activities and, and of the student union. And the reason I, I, I went back to that is because a lot of what we did doing that work was really trying to find out about students' experience and what, what would allow them to be more successful. And there's a connection here in terms of working with, at that time, underrepresented uh, students uh, within the university uh, com community, as well as doing uh, the, the same thing with, with, uh, in a business setting, in some type of a corporate or, or governmental uh, setting. And one of the things that strikes me is almost, it, it's, it's almost hard to describe uh, in terms of specificity, but it really comes down to feelings people have. And it's feelings of disconnect. It's feelings of this isn't really for me. It's for someone else. And one of the things that I struggled then and still struggle today with could is you, that it's hard to put into words. Tyrone, could you back up for a second? I, mm -hmm. I lost a little bit of your audio and I just want to make sure we get that comment. Okay. It's uh, how far back do you want me to go? Just probably a minute back. So you don't have to okay. go with the full. Okay, so just real quickly, uh, it was, I was bringing in my experience working in higher education where we would ask similar questions of students. And we would get the students, the underrepresented student, uh, the group members who were students who would have similar responses. And those responses would be around the idea that it, it would, and it would be somewhat ambiguous. It wouldn't be, there wouldn't be specificity to it. It would be some ambiguity to it. And it would be things around, this doesn't seem like a place for me. This just doesn't seem like it's, it's, it's designed for people who look like me and who, who come from where I come from. And I think that it's similar in some instances when you ask those questions of people in the workplace. And they'll say, well, I just don't feel a connection here. And so what I really think people are saying is that culturally, 
they have existed in a different space than that, what they're experiencing in the, work, in the workplace. And so I said all that to say the following. I think one of the things that's important when you do this kind of work is that you have to bring out the specificity and you have to, it isn't always easy to get to. You have to bring out, okay, what would that actually look like? What would we be experiencing? And I found out that with students, what they would be experiencing is more students who look like them. That was a big part of it. This place what didn't seem like it's for me. It's because they didn't have a lot of students that look like them. And it would probably be the same case in terms of employees, employees who look like them. But in addition, giving them opportunities, and, and this, this, is, this, is, this is, here's some specificity, giving people opportunities to build connectivity with individuals in the organizations in some type of a systematic way. Now, I'm going to give you two quick examples. One of the things, or, or two of the things that can be solutions to helping underrepresented group members build connections with organizations are mentoring and employee resource groups. Now, mentoring is more of a one-on-one relationship where, and most of us know what mentoring is, where, where there's a mentor and there's a protege, and that mentor works with that protege to help facilitate his or her uh, psychological career and otherwise uh, other elements of their development. So that's, that's that relationship. Employee resource groups are actually groups designed for a particular cohort of employees. So it could be African-American employees, it could be veterans, it could be older employees, it could be individuals with particular skill sets, but they're designed to give people who are typically underrepresented group members a chance to connect with similar underrepresented group members and build relationships with significant uh, uh, leadership and significant insiders within the organization. Now, I said all that to say the following. What's typically missing for people who are underrepresented group members is the ability to build those connections. However they articulate this, and this is my long-winded way of arriving at this, but however they articulate it when, when they're asked the questions about what's missing, that's what's missing. Their ability to build connections with significant insiders within the organization. That's what's missing. Two ways to do that is mentoring and employee resource groups, and both can work tremendously well. The thing about mentoring is that the the, the problem with mentoring is that if you're an underrepresented group member, you're less likely to get a mentor than if you are a quote-unquote represented group member. It can be a little bit more difficult for you to find a mentor, which is why there are formal mentoring programs in many organizations. But they work very, very well in doing that. And so what typically is missing, just in summary, is the inability to effectively connect with key insiders within the organization and mentoring and, and employee resource groups are a way of actually addressing that. Yeah. So it kind of took a circuitous route. It was a little <laughs> long-winded, but that's, that's what typically when people are saying that what, what's missing, it, a lot of times it's ambiguous, but what they're really saying is I'm not building the connections with people I need to build, uh, build the entities I need to build connections with to be successful in this organization. Yeah, I don't feel connected. And we know that as leaders or the basic human needs, we want to feel seen and heard. And at work, we want to feel valued. And who wouldn't want to feel connected? Every single person wants to feel connected. Even that person that might be a little, you might think they're resistant. We all want to feel seen and heard. So just remembering that I love the idea of mentoring and employee resource groups. We've got another, more, so many questions coming in. And I don't know if you'd be willing to do this, but I can also send you these after and you could maybe, you know, send out a video to our group to answer some of them. But how can you increase diversity of your leadership pipeline, both from outside and internally? And it kind of goes with another question that someone had asked really about how can you dispel or erode nepotism? So I'm going to put those two together. 
And that's from Evan and Yogi. Thank you so much. Let me start with the second one. Uh, that's what, The nepotism one is hard. And the reason is because that, that's a manifestation of affinity bias. And there, there, there are some structural things that you can do. So, for example, you can add, some companies actually have anti-nepotism policies that basically say if you're related to a person at a certain level in the organization, you can't work in the organization or you can't work in that part of the organization. So that's one way that you can start to do that. Uh, organizations have, have done. Another thing you can do is if you don't want to, to, to be that stringent, you can actually make sure that a person who is related to a candidate is not at all involved in their, that selection process for them. So those are a couple of things that you can do. Uh, the, the first question is, is the, 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 really, we could do a workshop, on, and I've done workshops <laughs> on recruiting and retaining a high-quality, culturally diverse workforce. Let me, let me try to simplify it. The way you do it is you go to where they are. I say that again. The way you recruit a high-quality, culturally diverse workforce is you go to where they are. Now, here is why relatively few organizations are actually effective at recruiting a high-quality, culturally diverse workforce is because they utilize traditional methodology, methodologies and traditional techniques for their recruitment and selection process, and that will tend to get a relatively monocultural group of individuals. That doesn't mean they get a bad group of individuals. They may have some very, very good individuals there but they don't cast a very broad net. And one of the things that you have to do if you want to recruit a high-quality, culturally diverse candidate pool, and you'll notice that I keep saying high-quality, culturally diverse, it's easier to just recruit a culturally diverse candidate pool, but if it's not high-quality, then you're doing yourself a disservice. You want to make sure in, in your efforts to recruit a high-quality, culturally diverse workforce that you are really getting top-notch people. And so you have to go to where they are. So just by way of example, if you're looking for somebody who is in a leadership role in the insurance industry, Just and this is just one example, this is not the only way of doing it, but if you're looking for a leader in the insurance industry, there are undoubtedly organizations that cater to quote-unquote underrepresented members who are leaders in the insurance industry. You start to build relationships with those organizations. You start to go to some of their meetings. You start to interact with the individuals who are a part of that association. And guess what? Sooner or later, and it's going to be sooner, you start to identify people who are really good candidates for positions within your organization. Same thing if you, if you uh, are looking for uh, better uh, or, or looking for really good women leaders. There are tons of women leadership organizations and associations. You start to build relationships with those. You start to let them know about the positions that you have available. It's, it's you go to where they are. When you know that there's individuals that are going to be there that meet the qualifications you're looking for, you actually start sourcing uh, those individuals and you start tapping into those resources. It's, I don't want to make it sound like it's really easy because it takes work. This is something that does take work. You've got to actually spend some time doing it, but it's a relatively straightforward process. Well, and I think if I go back and reflect, I know that there are some organizations, I'm from Wisconsin, I went to a Big Ten school, and I know that there are actually a lot of organizations in the Midwest that will say, well, we're just going to go to the Big Ten schools, and that's where we'll post up. And that probably is a sign right there that you're going to have a more similar group of people than mm -hmm. maybe expanding your search, going to different universities and colleges that have different specialties or just are in different areas. So I know that that could be a blind spot, you know, which again, I'm, everything's going through. I'm like, oh, that's why we were all so connected because we all went to the big 10 and we all did this. And that's not doing anything for innovation. That's not doing anything for diversity, you know? So I, I love talking that back. Go 
you know, look at your recruiting processes. Where are you going? What are you missing? What are your blind spots? And break the mold. We've got another question. And I think this one's actually pretty serious because this whole topic and even around affinity bias or even around let's say that I'm going to address it in a more general way, addressing inequality in any of the facets of your organization. I'm going to read the question. There Mm -hmm. are a lot of affinity bias promotions at my company. When employees bring this up, there's actual and fear of retaliation. How do employees create their own safe space to address this inequity in workforce development and retention? Because it is hard when you may not have the power and you're having to go up to try and lead. How do you start to push some of those things through, create awareness so that people are understanding that there's bias there or that it's not an equal playing field for everyone? That's a great question. And the first thing I'm going to say is that I, I'm never going to say to somebody, do something that you think could put your job in jeopardy or put your status in jeopardy, even if you still have a job. I would never do that. Uh, I would never do anything that could damage somebody's career. If you genuinely feel fear uh, or great concern that if you raise certain issues, it will be used against you, then I'm not going to say raise those issues in that way. What I'm going to say is that your other alternative is to find someone in leadership that can be an ally. And you have to identify an individual that isn't going to have to worry about retaliation and is not going to have to worry about someone doing something negatively to them if they bring it up. And then try to try to have some conversations with that potential ally about your concerns and how they might be addressed. Because the reality is, I'd like to say, and I do say this, is that to the extent possible, if you have a concern, you should, you should air that. You should be able to sit down and have a conversation with someone in leadership about the concern. And you should be able to articulate why not only is that going to be beneficial to you, but beneficial to the organization for them to address that concern. But I, I recognize that that's not always an option for, for some people in certain circumstances and that there are, there's bad leadership. There are organizations that just flat out have bad leaders or ineffective leaders or leaders who are uh, vengeful, for lack of a better word, in terms of how they engage people. And so you've got to be really careful at making sure you keep your job and you can you can uh, continue to feed your family and feed yourself and do all those kind of good things. But in those cases, your only really other option is to find an ally in leadership and have, a, have that conversation with them so that perhaps they can, without fear of retaliation, bring that up. Yeah. And allyship you know, in alignment with the diversity, equity, inclusion, the um, social unrest that's going on. Allyship is so important right now Mm -hmm. to find people that you can connect with, that you can talk to, that can support you. And that can be there to maybe they don't necessarily directly experience it, but they can be your advocate. They can be Mm -hmm. someone that, you know, leads the way for you. So absolutely creating that allyship. Uh, we got another question. This is probably a big one. So maybe I'm not sure if we'll end on this one, but we'll see. If your organization includes law enforcement or similar entities that may be under more pressure and scrutiny at this time, for obvious reasons, we know with George, George Floyd and everything, um, for or at this time, sorry, how do you increase their buy-in while taking into consideration why they may or may not be comfortable with transparency, change, or self-reflection? And why also, while also trying to understand their own office culture? That's a great question. And we haven't talked about this, and this would be something good to close on, have some conversation around. A single word, and that is genuineness. You have to be genuine. And genuineness is being your real self, 
It's being straightforward. It's being who you are. You have to be genuine and you have to be honest. And I think the key in success in any of these types of endeavors is to be genuine and to be straightforward about what it is that you're trying to accomplish. There are entities, and the police would certainly be a good example of this, who would be very, very skeptical of any kind of conversation about topics like this because, and and again, I think it's understandable because they're under fire and they would see it as another opportunity for someone to put them under further fire. And if that's your goal, okay, then you're not going to get anywhere anyway. But if your goal is genuinely to facilitate change in a way that is going to be beneficial for all, you have to be genuine, upfront, and honest about that and about what you're trying to accomplish. Now, look, that doesn't mean it's going to work. It doesn't mean people are going to necessarily believe you or buy into you, what it is that you have to, to say. But I think that is a big key in all of this, is to be genuine and to be straightforward. And to have a discussion about what you mean, I'm going to give you a really quick example. I was doing a pretty significant diversity intervention last year for a, a client of mine in Idaho. And we were uh, having, we were in a full day session we were doing a number of things in terms of doing some data collection and doing some discussion around unconscious bias and things of that nature. And someone posed the question, it was a very simple question about, because we, we were talking about one of the things we want to focus on is diversity recruitment, because they were a really, really monocultural organization. And so we talked about diversity recruitment and what that looks like and things of that nature. And somebody asked a very honest and a very good question and basically said, my concern is that we're going to go from what I think is an organization that really was about hiring the best person to a quota system. And so what I did in that moment was I thanked them for the question. I said, it's a very good uh, concern. It's a very, very valid question. And what I did is I gave them an example of the approach that I take and what I do. And I said, you know what? There are people who will, who will do that, who will want to turn this into nothing more than a quota system. But I gave them an example of a presentation that I was doing probably 10 years earlier for a major university when someone actually said that they, there was an open position and someone said, we should just hire somebody who is a person of color or female and leave it at that, not even consider hiring a white male. And at the time I said that I have a problem with that. I find fault with that. And the reason I find fault with that is that what you're doing then is one, you're not genuinely trying to hire the best person. You're just trying to hire a person that's going to fit certain characteristics. And two, all you're doing is instead of actually as an organization becoming an organization that recruits, selects, and hires a a high-quality, multi-diverse workforce, you're going to become an organization that for certain positions hires the quote-unquote underrepresented group member and then goes back to doing what you normally do for all the other jobs. It's an ineffective way of doing this. And I don't think that philosophically or practically it works very well. And I gave them that example. So I said all that to say the following. I was genuine about who I am and what I'm trying to accomplish, and it resonated very well. They bought into it very well, and they, re- they recognized that, okay, this is, what, this is an individual that's genuinely trying to help us improve as an organization and is genuinely trying to help us utilize some different resources and techniques to get a high-quality, culture-diverse workforce. It worked very, very well. And I said, again, this is my long-winded way of saying this. I wanted to point that out because I think the key in all this is to be genuine, to be honest about your motives, to be honest about what you're trying to accomplish, and to be forthright about how it's going to affect the organization and what you're trying to do. And I think that that doesn't mean you're always going to be successful because there's going to there might be they don't want to do it. And that's okay. I've, I've run into that as well. But you're going to be successful far more often than not 
if you're genuine, if you're honest, and you're straightforward with who you are and what you're really trying to do. Because there's going to be skeptics. There's going to be people who are people of goodwill who want to do something, but they're skeptical, skeptical because they've had bad experiences. And so you want to make sure that they know who you are, what you're about, and what you're really trying to accomplish, and that you have really good intent in trying to make it something successful for everyone. Oh my gosh. Tyrone, you killed it in this conversation. You can see in the chats, you have just given people, and I know we're a little bit over, so thank you for being with us. You have given people so many different insights to be able to walk away today. You know, obviously I love the closing piece of our genuineness, understanding our intent and being transparent about that, but also remembering it's all about building on our commonalities and creating that bridge, taking baby steps, focusing on our recruiting process or other places where we may have bias that we can try to mitigate or manage. Also thinking about how can we create those opportunities for people to connect, whether that's employee resource groups or mentoring. I can't even go through everything that you shared. But for those, Tyrone's contact information is on the screen. Tyrone also does workshops. He's a keynote speaker. He's an author. He gave you his personal email address. So if you do have questions that are not answered, please feel free to connect with Tyrone. You see it at drholmes at sbcglobal.net. He is someone that we as Crescom have loved working with. So, and just as a reminder, if you want to connect with Crescom, you can sign up and contact us for a free leadership skills workshop just to come into your organization. Maybe we can uncover some of these topics. And last, please don't forget to subscribe to Crescom's podcast, The Leadership Habit. We've actually done an episode with Tyrone and hey, maybe we'll do some more. This one's going to actually be recorded and put onto our podcast. So if you want that refresh, know that it's going to be there shortly. Thank you so much for everyone for joining us today. We're so excited to go ahead and do this again in a few hours. Tyrone, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your knowledge, insight, all of these tips and best practices. We are so grateful to have you. My pleasure. Thank you all. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Dr. Tyrone Holmes today, all about inclusive leadership and what we can do. It was a great conversation. I hope that it stimulated new thoughts or new ways that you can connect with others around you. If you want to connect with Tyrone, book him, have him come into your organization, you can go to drtyronehomes.com or you can find the link in our show notes. If you liked today's episode, please share it with your friends, take us on social media, and don't forget to write us a review on your favorite podcast streaming service. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Bye.